Welcome to The Ledge. My name is Chris Harper, and I'll be your host every week. Every Tuesday, I will interview an artist, developer, or creative mind from the Web3 space. I'll be getting up close and personal with my guests as we explore the emerging crypto art and NFT scene. It is my feeling, along with many others, that we are in a digital renaissance. The emergence of blockchain technology has revolutionized the way we look at ownership, provenance, and digital assets. It is my goal as your host to help shed light on these complex subjects, and even more so, the individuals behind it all who are carving out their place in history here on the ledge of Web3. like to welcome everyone to another episode of The Ledge. Today, I'm getting to talk to an artist and collector of NFTs that I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. Brian Brinkman, man, you're like an OG in the NFT space. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for coming on, man. I like to just start everybody by asking just a basic question, like, uh, can you introduce yourself, your name, age, where you're from, where you, where you live? <laughs> He doxed me. Um, yeah, uh, Brian Brinkman, based uh, a little north of New York and Westchester these days. Um, Age-wise, I'm 38, I believe. Um, and yeah, I grew up in Nebraska, went to school in Philadelphia, moved to New York, been here pretty much ever since. Uh, and yeah, my background's in you know animation, uh, which has kind of evolved into lots of different art forms based around those ideas of animation. And I've been in the NFT space for a little over three years now. Yeah, which makes you like one of the first people. <laughs> well, it's like everybody, I, I was, it's like when you move to New York, everyone goes, oh, you're a real New Yorker when you've lived here 10 years. That's kind of like the vibe you get when you move here. I right. feel like it's the same thing in the NFT space where as long as you're there for more than a year, everyone starts to call you an OG. Right. Yeah, but three years is kind of like the beginning of like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The movement. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I was in it before, um, you know, the the big Beeple push or Top Shot or like all these all these massive onboarding things. It was I was I was there, um, you know, six to nine months before that kind of amazing wave happened where all the Instagram photographers and 3d artists all kind of onboarded at the same time. And the space like beefed up super fast. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I guess I'm an OG, but I, you know, I've always felt insecure calling myself that because I knew all these artists that were in the space since like 2017, 2018, like the coldies, the X copies, Josie, a lot of, you know, all these people that I, I, put in years before me. So I've always been a little hesitant to call myself a, a true OG. Who onboarded you? Uh, no one specifically onboarded me, but I was onboarded because I saw Killer Acid, who again, OG, one of the first super yeah, rare mentors. Um, I, I'm, I'm a big collector of his art. You, you can't see it since it's audio, but I have a print of his right here behind me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I've, I've just, you know, I've always collected his art, been a fan. And so, uh, when I saw him posting about selling animated GIFs on Super Rare back in December 2019, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like, this this feels like something that I should try out. And so I, I spent a few weeks looking into what NFTs were, what Ethereum was, what Super Rare was. Uh, and then I applied and I got on and I minted my first NFT in uh, February 2020. Do you, did you have crypto experience at all? Were you like in crypto? Did you buy Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any of that stuff? No, there, there was there was a moment a few years prior where my wife was like, "Hey, these crypto kitty things are pretty funny. Look, they're like glitching and all this stuff." And I was like, "Oh, that's cool. I'm gonna figure out how to do that." And I tried to like set up an account on Mount Gox, and I screwed up setting up an account on Coinbase where it was like I accidentally put I was like in Japan or something, and so it was like you have to send your passport and all these things to prove your location i was like this is too much work i don't want to give right. all my info to this random website i don't know right. um and so i kind of put it on hold um and so it's all you know I, I was aware of it but i was not actively um trading coins or anything and in the end it's probably for the best because i would have put all my money into mount gox and lost it or maybe really just gotten until, it back like a couple of weeks ago right <laughs> yeah no doubt <laughs> really until coinbase kind of like blew up man like it was you know like the learning curve for crypto was so steep anyway man like it was yeah. very confusing 
you know i remember like i had a friend who was really into bitcoin when it was like in like the couple of hundred dollar range and he was like you gotta buy bitcoin you gotta buy bitcoin and i was like man i'm never you know i just thought no i'm never buying that stuff yeah <laughs> yeah it's a weird space where you everyone comes in skeptical and it's a healthy right. skepticism because it's sure. there's a suspension of belief where you go okay well you know one we're trading these imaginary coins and then two we're buying you know art that's digital um there's like a lot of steps of like uh getting past preconceived notions and stuff like that and i i, I still see it someone on twitter today called me i was like oh, people are still doing this nft scam thing it's like <laughs> you know there's there's always going to be haters and so that's that's the that's i don't know maybe that just makes everyone a little more emboldened to keep pushing I, I saw like a clip from a bill Maher show recently where he was like <laughs> it was rough NFTs. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah just it was saying. like so it, it it took me back two years because it was like right the talking points they were using were so dated to what people were saying two years ago uh that i i really thought we had gotten past a lot of those things yeah. um but it really just shows how poorly the space is at uh pr <laughs> very very much so yeah and i guess there's because there's no nobody's in charge it's just you know the the nature of being decentralized right like it's just yeah it's, just, it's really yeah. just nerds and artists that are like <laughs> yeah you know, it's just people having fun and like just kind of making up making it up as we go along well it's like there's there's so many similar industries that nobody nobody talks like that about no one goes oh yeah all these record stores and discogs collectors selling records and saying oh this is valuable because there's only a hundred of these records and it has a right. misprint or what it's just, it's the exact same idea it's like as long as there's a, a group of people that uh, agree that it's cool and has value and want to buy it or support it um it's the exact same idea and so it's 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 very silly to me that someone would be like you know this is legitimate because it has a physical component and this is illegitimate because it has a digital component. I heard um, like NFTs referred to as dematerialized property once. And that made the most sense to me of anything. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I haven't heard that. Yeah. Once I, once I heard it that way, I, I kind of started clicking in my head like, Oh, that really does make sense. It is in fact, dematerialized property. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, I don't know. I've, I've worked in these like television industries for so long where you make stuff that goes into the air and then sometimes it gets put on YouTube and lasts forever. But a lot of the times due to the rights restrictions on music or whatever right. rules they have, they just vanish and never get seen again. And yeah. so it's like, you know, that idea of like what, what does last, uh, at least the blockchain in my mind has more long-term provenance than stuff that goes on TV. Look at it, like how many of these streaming services are just like destroying uh, the ability to watch like classic television shows. There's like, well, we're just going to wipe out all these from our library. And then there's just no way to watch those shows anymore. No, I know. It's totally crazy, man. I, I you know, that would, it was kind of like the last thing you expect. You'd figure it'd be on there forever. Like you could just watch <laughs> yeah. it forever, but it just disappears into the ether and you can't watch it anymore. How does a kid from Nebraska end up in New York? Hmm. Well, grew up in Omaha, got really into making digital cartoons. There was this website called Newgrounds back in the day that I was like posting little cartoons on. Um, right. And then connected with a, a buddy, his name's Edmund. He was like going to college in Philly because we were both making cartoons for Newgrounds. He's like, I'm going to go to this college in Philly. They teach animation you should be an animator. And I, you know, in my mind, I was like, Oh, I want to be a film director. You know, uh, I want to right. be like Tim Burton. And he, he basically said Tim Burton was an animator and then he became a film director. And if you learn animation, you learn how to make film and you learn how to draw. Uh, and I was like, Oh, well that's actually, yeah, it's a more well-rounded uh, thing to get out of college with. Yeah. Uh, and so I went to college in Philadelphia at the university of the arts, got, got my degree in animation. And then I kind of, uh, Shortly after that, I got my first job up in New York. You know, I'd been doing some like interns and stuff, internships. Um, but then, yeah, I started working in the uh, city as kind of a jack of all trades where I was, you know, working in a fashion commercial house. And so I was like editing these 
things called spec commercials, which is like basically just like they'd send you to a, a video rental store. So there's like Kim's video, which no longer exists, but you'd go and you just rent dozens of DVDs. You'd rip those DVDs onto the computer and then you'd pull out interesting scenes from that. And then you'd take all these little clips and you'd put together some interesting commercial that like spec tells a story and then you pitch that to a company and they said, okay, here's the money, go make the real thing. And then they go film it. So that was one of my jobs in which, um, you know, at the same time I was doing the motion graphics on that, I was doing um, like flash web presentations and website stuff and like building their database of archiving and all this other stuff. So it was like, they kind of threw me into this position that they used to freelance out to people, but they said, you're going to do all of these and we'll also, you know, send you to S SVA, which is the school of visual arts, take like right. continuing education courses, get better at editing, do all this stuff. Um, right. So that, that was the first few years. Then I went off and did, HBO cartoon, Life and Times of Tim, uh, worked in commercials, doing like Hasbro and music videos, um, MTV shows, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually worked in late night television for a long time. So that, that was like, that was my like career trajectory, uh, up until the point where NFTs became, uh, my new, my new path that came out of nowhere. Were you on Saturday night live? Yeah. So I was in the, the visual effects department, uh, yeah. at Saturday night live. So it was me and me and a group of people that, uh, they basically shoot those pre-tapes. There's like two or three a show. They shoot them yeah. all on uh, Friday and then they edit it and we do all these special effects on Saturday and then it airs that night. So it's like a uh -huh. <laughs> very intense day. <laughs> <laughs> What's that like working on Saturday Night Live? Um, it's like a gauntlet, you know? It's like, it's it pushes you to your extremes of like, can you work at a super fast pace and also be willing to like shift and pivot and like cut corners to get things done in time? Because there's a, mm. there's an extremely hard deadline. Uh, it's right. live. You can't be <laughs> right. late. And right. so it's just, you're constantly watching a clock tick. And even while the show is airing live, a lot of times you're working on stuff that's going to air a half hour later in the show. Um, and hitting render and getting it to the editors and hoping it makes it to air. Um, so it's, it's a, it's an extremely, uh, tough show, but, um, it, it's extremely rewarding yeah. to see it, make it to air and hearing those laughs. I mean, you get addicted to hearing the laughs, uh, working on those late night shows. Yeah. I bet man. when you hit it out of the park, it's like, you know, money. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well then you, you instantly see it reverberate on social media where it's like you see it live and then you see people screenshot that thing or share it and laugh. Um, and so there's like this, this instant gratification. Oh, that's incredible. What, what made you think that you, what, what, what in your life happened to you that made you think I'm an artist when you were a kid? Did you, what, did you, were you like in the drawing or how'd you get into animation? Like what? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I would say I, I like taking art classes. I really got into, playing on the computer early on, playing with like creative software, whether it's MS Paint or, you know, early 3D stuff. Um, my my family is very musically driven. Like my father's a drummer, my brother's a guitarist and singer. So I've always had like a music inclination. Um, I think animation has a similarity to music and that is rhythm-based and timing-based. And so I think, you know, what I didn't become a musician, but I think I've there's something about what I do that is playing on these rhythms. Right. And so I think there was that aspect. And then, yeah, you know, my parents were very encouraging of it. And, and then, um, yeah, like I said earlier, like the, the new grounds, you post a cartoon on this website, uh, people comment on it. They like it. They rate it out of five stars. If it gets enough, it stays on that kind of, creating something that elicits feedback and response became something that I got really excited about. It was like, Oh, I can share this, you know, the same way that, you know, you make films for like festivals and you go watch it in a room of people and you hear them audibly respond to what you're doing is such a feeling that's, you know, it's like, you know, the same thing comedians probably feel when they do stand up comedy and stuff. You, it's like you create and feel an energy that's coming from you. Do you remember the first, thing that you made that you would call like animation art or do you know what it was? Um, 
I mean, there was, I mean, stuff I didn't put on the internet back in the day that were just like making things move around the screen. Um, there was some early Newgrounds ones that I, I did one called the Paranoid Dog, which was basically like a, a Warner Brothers cartoon where it was like this dog that had my voice and would say bark, bark. And then eventually some comical thing would kill it. But, you know, this is very, this is in the, uh, the, the frog blender era of internet <laughs> cartoons. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and so it was like a, a big cannon would come out and blow off its head. It wasn't, it wasn't like gory or anything, yeah. um, but it was just like set up punchline, very simple stuff. Um, but that was like, I did a series of like, how is he going to die? You know, and it, was, it was very stupid, but uh, like that, those are the things that I put out there that early on that I was just like, Oh, this is, this is what the people want. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, you know, still just, have like copies of your early works like that? Um, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been pretty good at, um, archiving most of it. I mean, those would be dot SWF flash files. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I don't think maybe they, they, you'd have to find a special player to play them on, um, the internet some of them may still exist out there um most of them don't resurface because they're not they're not offensive they're just stupid i went to the beeple thing man and beeple's got that museum here in charleston and yeah. uh d- dude he's got like like stuff from when he was like a, like a kid making stuff you know it's yeah like, it's very impressive you know that he kept all of that work you know yeah and has it on display in a museum now which is really really impressive yeah a lot of the things i made i look back on and cringe um some of them were like i had a character that was in a wheelchair and not because i was making fun of wheelchairs but because it was easier to animate a wheelchair moving across the screen than it would be to like have legs walking and it was just like a product of my um my simple uh skills at the time that's pretty cool man <laughs> what was the first so you said you meant the first thing you meant it was on super rare what was it uh it was a piece called explode and so it was these kind of puffs of color that constantly kind of ex- exploded out clouds um and so that that piece was kind of my start of a, like a fresh start i would say because i'd yeah. been doing gallery work and all these things and i didn't really know what my style was and I didn't want to pull in that past work into this space. I wanted to have a kind of a fresh start. So I went with that and I was like, okay, well, this is an explosion of colors. It has hand-drawn animation. It's looping. It's colorful. I saw that as being kind of a statement of who I am and also like differentiating myself from a lot of what was already on super rare, which was a lot of kind of like dark and glitchy and murky stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I put out that, and then the first, like, f- I would say five or so pieces I did, I was kind of, if you look back at them, they're not very cohesive. Cause I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> just kind of like putting out interesting things. Yeah. And then I would say by like the 10th piece, I kind of figured out the path I was going to take. And I was like, Oh, the colors will be the path. And then I can start building up clouds and images and wires and then all these like iconography things started to kind of form out of just building it up because um yeah i didn't i didn't go in with like a set a set plan i just i joined the space and then a month or two later covid happened and i was like well uh i'm gonna use all this free time i have now to learn more techniques and play with stuff and try and put out a piece of art on super rare every week. And I did that for about, I would say the first nine months and then, and then it expanded into lots of other stuff. So, yeah. Your body works pretty, pretty large. You have a lot of stuff out there. How, how Your sales look like you've been, you know, you've done pretty well from what it looks like to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful that I've been able to, um, you know, have this be a, a legitimate career on its own and not a, not a, yeah. a side project or a hobby. Um, yeah. I think with any market, that's been always the, the difficult part, especially for, you know, people like me who came in early, there was this big peak of excitement 
And I don't know if NFTs will ever reach that massive level of speculation again. And so there's always going to be a few things that sold in that moment where like art blocks was on fire and like one of ones were going crazy and like all these, you know, whales and funds were just dumping tons of money. Um, It's super hard to like hit those metrics over and over. And so I think, you know, the space is always about kind of reassessing where your value is at and then kind of pricing your stuff in a way that is not, you know, not extracting tons of value, but like putting it in a very fair, fair market and letting people kind of decide the price to a degree. Um, and so that, that's, uh, that's kind of where my mind's at is like, uh, <laughs> I'm still very think, I mean, we had, I had a piece sell at Sotheby's a couple of weeks ago and that was, it sold above the estimate. And to me, that's like a wonderful, a wonderful, uh, sign that things are still okay. Um, but yeah, I saw that. yeah, it was impressive. That's impressive. And congratulations. That's Thanks. Wow. No. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like quite a few um, digital artists, animators are making their way into Sotheby's and Christie's right now. Yeah, yeah. No, I think Sotheby's and Christie's to me are both pivoting to being the new super rare, for instance. Um, I think, you know, the fees are a little higher, but the prestige is also a little higher. Um, But yeah, I don't, you know, I I wonder if they will be able to maintain that level of prestige if they continue to be so open. Uh, But for an artist, I think the more artists that can achieve their dreams of being in these auction houses at some point in their living career um, is just an incredible opportunity. And so, you know, I don't, I don't recommend any artists do like all of their drops in one spot, but I think every artist should try it once just for that that resume uh, you know it's really cool yeah it's definitely a feather in your cap man to say i have a you know a big sale at, at christie's or sotheby's i saw um, thank you x did you see the sale yet yesterday yeah well bid i don't think it's sold yet oh, but oh, yeah, <laughs> i don't know if anybody's gonna outbid that that was crazy 100 yeah. ETH. <laughs> 100 ETH. In, in incredible yeah. i mean thank you x is one of those artists that has a background in the traditional art world and he he's extremely thoughtful with his one of ones and he's very you know well-rounded he puts out a lot of interesting work um that that one shocked me though in this market it's like whoa (laughs) look at so it's kind of weird to see uh you know what's going on right now like i was looking at like some things this morning and it looks like nfts are just dumping all over the place like yeah floors on big you know pfp stuff like board apes and moonbirds and all these things are way 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 down yeah uh you know then you turn around and you see a hundred eth bid on a art you know one of them <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, like, it's it's happening right now you know i mean i think the the thing i've always kind of felt is that if you're thoughtful and responsible during a bull market you can make a living and continue to be successful in a bear market and i think what we're seeing is the artists that have been thoughtful about their things their their supply their demand their and they're, they're constantly building and growing and active they're the ones that are finding success right now because it is a consolidation period and a lot of people are you know looking at their their bags. We just had taxes last week or this week. Um, and you know, when you do your taxes, that's a moment of reflection. And I think, um, what we're seeing with the market dipping right now is like five different things happening at once, which is like taxes, um, a bunch of whales quitting on blur. Um, and then, uh, meme coins going crazy. And so everyone wanted to jump into that and, while jumping into that, it wrecked gas prices. So nobody wanted to spend $50 to do a transaction on Ethereum. And so it's like all these things are just compounding right now. I think it'll, things will recover in a week or two once like yeah. these metas kind of get over with. Um, but I do think it's going to be probably a slow summer. I'll, I'll, you know, admittedly, I sold my board ape um, a few days ago. So. Oh, wow. Did you? Yeah. I, was gonna talk, I wanted to talk to you. And one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on here, uh, not only do I 
uh, I follow you. I collect your art and I'm, you know, very happy to talk to you about your own personal art, but I wanted to talk to you because I know you're a big collector in the space. Mm-hmm. You, have, you have a pretty impressive collection. Thanks. No, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's pretty good, but sometimes I, I worry that it's not, you know, a lot of times the whales dictate what are good collections. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but I, I'm very, I'm, I, I have a deep collection and I, I will I'll admit I'm a degen. Um, but I'm also, um, I, I'm a degen, but I'm terrible at flipping, you know, I like to get involved in a lot of these things, but then I get very nervous about flipping because I'm, you know, all these people, you buy into this project with, with thousands of other people and then you sell and then thousands of people are mad at you for selling. And so it's a losing, uh, endeavor. Uh, so I usually just buy things that I'm like, Oh, this is cool. And I'm okay holding it. But, um, yeah, yeah I would say like whenever I do any of my art sales, I try to take, you know, 10% of whatever the profits I make and put it back into buying other pieces of art. And I think right. that's one because I'm for, you know, I'm just a deep collector in general. I, I collect all sorts of things from vinyl records to screen prints to all sorts. You know, they can't see it, but my background is filled with uh, junk I've collected. Um, <laughs> some of it's fine art. Don't get me wrong. But over here, I got a whole yeah. lot. Uh, but yeah, I think it's smart for artists to reinvest. I mean, I learned that from people like Coldy and Sarah Zucker early on and a lot of money, um, that, you know, you see, you see them selling a next copy piece two years later for a ton of money. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that my art career will last. Uh, but, uh, if it doesn't for whatever reason, maybe I go out of style or something. Um, the investments I make in other artists could be the, the difference between my career hurting or me being able to retire. And so I think it's just smart if you're an artist and you see other artists that you believe in to get a little investment in them. It's like buying stocks in companies you believe in. Yeah, I totally agree with that, man. I, um, what, what, what's some of the stuff that you have that you like, what's some of your grills? What do you have in your wallet? That you, you're really, um, well, um, I would say uh, one of my grails, like I probably can never sell is a, a killer acid. One of one on super rare that uh, Jimmy dot ETH gifted me. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 unless, unless, you know, someday maybe there's, there's always a price, you know, but, um, <laughs> sure, but sure. I have no interest in ever selling that anytime soon. Um, some of my favorite grails, um, I have Jisoo's uh, super rare Genesis piece. I love her work. Um, I have a very early odious piece. I think that's really cool. Nice. Um, I'm trying to think, Hmm. I have, I have a really wonderful piece by Yosnir that I love. Um, and so I think there's just a lot of, I don't know. I, I, it took me a while to be able to afford one of ones. So I have a lot of early like editions. I have a ton of Sarah Zucker editions. Yeah. Um, I have some like a lot of money editions, a lot of some coldy editions, but like um, that was, that was the fun part at the kind of in 2020 when rareable took off and there was that rare token moment, right. all of the super rare artists started putting out little editions of 10 and it was a great way for us all to kind of collect each other in an affordable way. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed that little moment of time. Yeah, I mean, there's no way I'm going to be able to buy like a Coldy or, a, you know, Sarah Zucker 101, but I got some additions in my wallet, which I'm yeah. very, very happy to have. Yeah. What, on, what's your, on, wait, what's your, what's your favorite grail? That I have? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, actually, we were talking about Thank You X. I have a one of 10. Uh, Thank You X. Nice. Yeah, which was, you know, that's probably like my most expensive piece I have. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool did you did you do the state of the art thing i have two like uh two by one yeah. Yeah, two by ones coming in the I, mail soon me too yeah yeah i did too nice. yeah I did. yeah I'm, I'm a big fan of his you know there was a lot of artists from that like early days of nifty gateways that i still just kind of like you got you um um you know you, you you were on nifty gateway a lot during that time right um i my first nifty drop was in october 2020 and it was a pretty yeah. small drop. I think there was like 35 pieces total. Um, right. And then uh, my next drop wasn't until Nifty had this huge boom and bust bell curve. <laughs> and then I dropped in uh, June of 2021. 
And like Nifty was like totally dead by that time. Like every all, all those artists made like million dollar sales. And I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And I signed on. And then by the time my drop came around, everyone fled Nifty, um, which was fine. But it was like I did that uh, Flickr Fusion drop, uh, which is like kind of this neon light inspired animation inspired thing. Um, yeah. But like even then, it was, the market was so down. It took all summer to sell out this like hundred and it was like. I think five, five pieces with 20 editions each or oh, something like that, or maybe, maybe six pieces, but it took all summer to sell out. It wasn't until I went on like a, a, a top shot podcast and talked about it that people, all these like top shot people were like, Oh, this is cool. I'm gonna go buy this. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it sold out and then it like was worth like three times more. But like, I, I don't know. I've, I've used that example so many times with artists that like it's, sometimes things just don't sell out very fast, but that doesn't mean it's like a failed attempt. It just means you got to like, you got to grind that marketing a little more. <laughs> yeah. Just keep showing up on podcasts. You never know. Which one's <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it, you just have to connect with the right people. And yeah, but yeah. And then I've, since then I've done, I, I tried to do a nifty drop like every six to nine months, but uh, the last one I did was technically uh, like a month or two ago for this, like art to buy drop. Yeah, I didn't get one from that. I got one from uh, like a charity drop, charity thing that you did. It's like a the Venice one. Venice, yeah, I got. Yeah, I, got, I love I got, that piece. Yeah, we yeah, just I showed it, it in um, South Street Seaport in New York. It's it was on display there. Oh no way! Yeah, it was like this. It was called On the Water, and so it was all these pieces about like water focused art. Um, I don't know if it was there during an FTMIC. They might have swapped it out, but it was up for a few weeks there. But uh, yeah, that piece I feel like kind of flies under the radar because it was a charity piece. And um, for a long time, it was categorized outside of my name. And so it was really hard to find. Uh, but they finally kind of brought it all together. And now there's all these like aggregators that are making it easier to find. But I actually bought one back uh, a couple months ago. Your stuff would out. So I think that's how I got lucky and got it is because it wasn't like, hyped under your name at the time it was like you know, yeah it was under yeah it was for um this this clinic in venice that you funds medical help for homeless people which is yeah like a women's charity or something yeah um i don't think it's women only though i think oh. it's it's open to all homeless people in the venice and la area um yeah. which is I, I i love la i lived out there for like almost a year but um, I'm, I'm only starting to learn more about Skid Row, which is such a fascinating little area of like. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to Skid Row? Oh, I've driven through it a few times. I've never walked it, um, but I, there's a really good um, restaurant, like a block. There's a few restaurants like right on the edges of them, um, but I only recently started like really digging into it because I always thought it was just a nickname. I didn't realize it was like the city purposely built it as a way to like corral all the homeless people in one spot and they used all these like tactics to do it it's uh, we don't need to get into that but it's worth googling or youtubing uh it's yeah. a it's a really interesting history of like how a city can like build basically a homeless um neighborhood well i knew there was a so the the midnight mission in uh in in um in la which is on skid row is like the biggest mission there in, in Los Angeles. Yeah. I, I knew and was friends with the director of that. His name was Clancy Islaman and his, he, he died actually uh, right around COVID. He was, oh. a really, he was a really old guy, but he was the director of that midnight mission for like 45 years or something. Wow. And so I had the opportunity to go up there and visit with him a few times and, you know, walk around out there, man. And it's just like, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking, man. To it's like a little war zone. Yeah. It's wild. It's hard to believe that that's in the United States, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is like when I lived out there 10 years ago, that was kind of it, but now it's like spread in like Hollywood starting to look like that. And it's like, it's kind of interesting how it's like they were no longer able to contain it after COVID. Um, but yeah, it's, it's its own I don't know. There's lots of lessons to be learned there probably, but (laughs) hopefully donating to these type of places will ease some of that stuff. But it's, it's, it's very tragic. I mean, like someone, the thing I was watching said the average um, life expectancy of people that live there is like 48, which is just insane. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a hard life, man. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
you know, that's uh, that's very um, kind of you and thoughtful of you to, to 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 use your art for charitable purposes like that, man. Do you do other stuff like charity wise? Um, I do. Um, yeah. yeah. So I've I mean, I've done all sorts of stuff. I usually I try to have a component in a lot of my drops, whether it was like my Nimteens drop earlier this year, a uh, portion of that went to the Trevor Project. I did uh, this levels.art, portion of that went to Girls Who Code. Um, and then I've also helped build um, a, a platform called ChangeDAO, which is basically an NFT marketplace for artists to drop NFTs. And we kind of do a lot of the in-between work so that it doesn't fall on the artist to cash out to fiat and send all these things to get hit with tax implications and all that. So um, right. I, I connected. What's that? I said, oh, just, yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so yeah, I connected with them about two years ago and we've just slowly been building it. Now, now we're starting, it took a long time to get it because uh, it was on Ethereum and all this stuff. And um, figuring out a lot of the logistics and the accounting and legalities. Um, and so now, now we've done it. I, I was part of the, the early drop for Upring, which was a, uh, Texas-based um, adoption agency for foster children. Um, and so um, I think we have another one. This will probably air after, but we have another one on Saturday uh, for Marissa Schur. She's going to be raising money um, for climate. Uh, I forget the, the actual name of the project right now, but um, yeah, it's, it's starting to come out. And so that, that was kind of, especially early on, a lot of people go like, oh, what's your charity of choice and i don't have like strong beliefs in one specific angle um so i'm like well if i can build a platform that helps all of them that's a better solution than me just like giving a little chunk here and there and so it's been really fun um to build that so yeah i think using nfts and having charitable aspects built into it is like one of the cool features of the space that i hope more artists take advantage of if somebody's listening to this and they want to find out more about that, how would they look into that? Yeah, it's called, well, actually it used to be called change. Yeah. Now it's called change gallery. We, cause we realized it's more of a, a, a an art platform than a DAO. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. it was, we had, a, it was, it was false name. Um, and so uh, if you look up change gallery on Twitter, or, or I think it's still changedao.org DAO. Oh. Um, but yeah, yeah. Everyone should go check it out. And if, if you're an artist listening, um, or a nonprofit listening, reach out to them. Um, it's great. Yeah. I love that, man. That's uh that's great. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. Who, who inspires you? What artists do you follow, emulate? <laughs> Learn from? Um, inspire early on inspirations. I was very inspired by Don Hertzfeld. Um, he's a traditional animator that made, stick figure films that were nominated for Oscars and that kind of opened my eyes to storytelling being more important than, um, technical skills. Hmm. Uh, uh, another inspiration in the animation world would be Bill Plimpton. Um, he's like, he's gotta be like almost 90 now. Um, and he's the hardest grinding animator I've ever known. He's at every convention. He's at every film festival. He uses wow. the money he makes from selling DVDs and drawings to fund his next films. And he puts out a film a year for, uh, he also was nominated for an Oscar, I think multiple times. Um, wow. And so it's like, you know, I look at him and I'm as like a prototype for an independent artist that can make a living doing art. He also just has a, a crazy drive. Uh, I remember we were at film festivals together and I'd be like, Oh, are we going to go to the, the festival party he's like no nah, i'm going back to my hotel to draw because i have to make another film and i was like okay wow. this guy is like legit um so I, you know I, he was he was he was a, he was definitely inspiring um and then within the space um people that i find inspiration in since i joined would be like josie bellini yeah. i think she's super thoughtful with her collectors and her supply and how she presents herself and she's like the most og person ever um I'm a big fan of Joy World and how he kind of carved his own path with his own smart contracts and avoided any of the platforms pretty much. And was like, I'm just going to be my own store. Um, He's been doing that forever. I think that's super inspiring. Um, And then, yeah, I'd say like Killer Acid's always an inspiring guy. And 
there's there's I'm, I'm inspired by people on my timeline every single day every time someone comes up with a nice cool mechanic or a cool take on something i'm like i wish i'd come up with that first you know <laughs> what about dk you follow him man? yeah yeah so i had known about dk's work through um the animation industry because he he sold plugins that allowed you to animate with his walk cycles and stuff right um and so i'd already i've, I've always kind of seen his tutorials and plugins around and yeah. he's got such a lovely sense of timing and motion. Like yeah. he's truly a pro and everything he does is just mesmerizing. Cause it's like, it's in the animation world. We, it's a lot of working with curves of speed ramps and stuff. And I think he's got some of the best <laughs> curve. He's got good curves. <laughs> <laughs> like the curves, DK. It made me think yeah. when you were talking about like the the musical connection or the rhythmic connection to animation. Yeah. It, it made me think of him actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah my my recent Sotheby's piece, someone compared it to DK, and I thought that I, was, I, I would agree I, with that. I, I, I thought that was it, pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, <laughs> we we both have a love of like pinball and and kind of this like machinery style stuff. Yeah, no, that's very cool. Let me ask you a question, uh, Brian. What? So, I'm interested to hear, like, how how what do you use? Like, what are the tools of your trade? Yeah, I would say most of my ideas start um, on paper or Procreate as sketches, little thumbnails. It goes back to my like animation background of like making little thumbnails and storyboards and animatics and like kind of thinking out ideas. Yeah. Um, and then once I do that, I kind of decide, okay, am I going to build this? Uh, with 2D? Am I going to build it with 3D? Am I going to do it with both? Usually I work within the Adobe suite of Photoshop, Illustrator, Animate, After Effects, Cinema 4D. Um, wow. Sometimes I pull in some other weird stuff, um, but for the most part, I, th those are my like my wheelhouse. That's a my lot palette. of tools. That's a lot of tools. Yeah, and then there's Audition and premiere for the the post animation where you kind of finalize it too i um i started teaching myself how to use procreate not too long ago man and i've had a really good time just like watching youtube videos and learning how it's to, pretty powerful it's extremely powerful i yeah. like how there's so many the ui is brilliant because there's so much that you can tweak but it's all hidden within a few clicks yeah yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty impressive tool. Yeah, and uh, what what turned me on to it was I just you know I've talked to a lot of artists who who reference Procreate. Yeah, no, or sketch up Procreate than on paper now. Um, usually, what I'll do is I'll do it roughly in Procreate because I can. Usually, I'll be like sitting in the living room with my wife watching TV, and I'll have my iPad in my lap and just doodling ideas, and then. If one of those connects, then I take it onto my computer where I have a Cintiq, which is basically a, just a giant iPad, um, yeah. and so I can I can I can draw with better better size and gesture, um, yeah. and then immediately kind of build those into assets that I can bring into After Effects and stuff. Have you ever experimented with other forms of art? Have you ever done anything else like painting or anything? Um, yeah, I did a piece for Art Basel. Uh, last year that was spray paint on a physical punch clock from the 1920s. <laughs> that, was, oh. that was, that was shown at scope. Um, but I've, I've played with screen prints. I've played with, I used to do acrylic painting. I don't have the patience for oil, um, right. <laughs> but I, I like, I like playing with those things, but yeah. Um, for the most part, I prefer having an undo button. <laughs> and right. so I, I like keeping it digital. What was your um, first computer? Do you remember what your first computer was? Did you grow you, when you grew up? Did you have computers in the house all the time? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Well, we had one of those like Apple two E's that were like green and black, um, right. that played like floppy disks. Which yeah. Is, um, yeah, but uh, I wouldn't say I you know did much on that. And then uh, you know there was like then we graduated to like a Windows three point one, and I started to learn how to use DOS. Yeah. started using like QBasic and like that was when I started using paint and stuff. Um, and I think it was a, a Wang computer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I think we eventually got like, oh, there, 
there was a thing called e-machines for a moment there that were like cheap desktops. Um, And so, yeah, it's like, you know, then it was like Windows XP and all that stuff. Then things started to get a little more advanced, but. Do you I, use I, computers now or use most Mac or Windows? Um, I, I went through, for a moment there when I was working in the TV industry, I, I switched to Mac mostly um, uh-huh. just because a lot that's what a lot of the people there use. And it was easier to do transfers of files and stuff. Mostly I use a PC to do my work, yeah. but I have a MacBook Pro that I take for my like on-the-go work if I'm like traveling to a convention or something or if I want to work downstairs. Thankfully the code like having a dropbox that's on both makes it very easy for you to bounce around files and they've made it so like video codecs are more universal it used to be a real pain to work on one versus the other and now it's very easy to work on both if somebody were wanting to teach themselves some like just basic animation what would you how would you direct them to start learning how to do that yeah, I think it depends what type of animation. If you're looking to learn hand-drawn animation, mm-hmm. um, I would recommend going and buying um, Richard Williams' book, um, which is called The Animator's Survival Kit, I think, or something like that. Um, oh. But he, he's the guy that did, like, Roger Rabbit, and basically it shows you how to draw through, you know, dimensional character 2D animation in squash and stretch and all the principles, all the same stuff that Disney taught. Um, If you want to learn how to draw cool looking characters by Preston Blair's book. Um, If you're trying to learn after effects and motion graphics, I would recommend um, uh, Andrew Kramer's video copilot.net. Incredible visual effects tutorials. And he has like a basic course that teaches you after effects. Um, I learned a lot of After Effects from him. If you're trying to learn Cinema 4D, I recommend grayscalegorilla.com. It's a wonderful resource for tutorials on Cinema 4D and motion graphics. Um, but in the end, it's like Blender is free. If, you, if you're just trying to learn like 3D yeah. animation, go watch some Blender tutorials. That, that's going to be, I think, the future anyways. But yeah, I have uh, I have Blender and I, I uh, play around with it, man. It's, it's a very complicated you know yeah it's a little too much for me um it is man it's you know i'm not i'm not i don't feel like i'm smart enough to use it I, yeah it's, it's it's like you know Chinese it's crazy album. yeah it's yeah the, it, it goes back to what we were talking about with procreate where procreate is so powerful because it's easy to understand the ui whereas blender yeah. is extremely yeah. hard to understand the ui <laughs> <laughs> It's like going to like a NASA spaceship control panel. Right on that. Let me ask you about um, your collectors, man. How do you um, how do you stay connected to your collectors? How do you formulate those relationships? How do you get people interested in buying your stuff? Yeah, I find it's about being available. Um, I try not to bug collectors. Like I don't reach out to them and say, "Hey, my new pieces, go buy it." You know, but. I'm, uh-huh. I'm available to them. I have a discord where everyone's welcome to come hang out and chat. I'm always checking it and always around as like a, nice. a passive communication tool. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's collectors roles and stuff. And like this week, I, anybody that was a collector of mine could enter a raffle to win VCon tickets, for instance. So it's like, uh, uh-huh. there's like, you know, I, I, I put a lot of like raffles and opportunities and whitelist other projects in there. Um, I try to give back to the collectors in various ways like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, at this point I have probably over a thousand collectors across the board. So it's, it's hard to have like a deep personal connection with every single one of them, but I'm not against having that. It's just more of whether they want to have that or not. I'm not going to (laughs) like go knock on their door. Uh, but yeah, it is a, it is a weird balance of like making people feel because in the end, when I, when people buy my art for better or worse, they're buying into me as a person and I want to be at least available to a degree, um, because they're supporting me and I, I appreciate that. So I think that the connections with collectors are some of the more fun aspects of the space because whether they're holding my thing long-term or they're flipping it, you know, the stories I hear from them are really awesome. Um, you know, some people have like, sold my art and told me they use the money to buy like an engagement ring or like take their son on a vacation and like all sorts of cool stuff like that, that like 
before NFTs, when I would sell my art, I had no idea who bought it. I would never hear any of these things. There would honestly probably never even be secondary sales of my stuff before NFTs because they were like physical art that went into houses that would probably never right. have a, have a method of reselling. Um, right. <laughs> and so I think that's, you know, that's, what's so fun about the space is that it's like, a, it is a community um, is, is, like nauseating it is to say community and NFTs. Um, but it really is. And there's a, we're all kind of in a, in a community of people that are supporting each other. Um, so I think it's, yeah, I'm, that's my, that's, that's my general take on collectors. I think they're great. Uh, and if any of them are listening and they want to chat, just hit me up. My DMS are open. Yeah. There's gotta be some Brinkman whales out there, man, for sure. There's, there's a few, I was talking to one yesterday cause, um, He's got a he's got a few of my one of ones and a, quite a few of my additions, but like he's 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 about to become a firefighter and he's doing all this awesome stuff. So he's kind of like, but he just like he just bought like a super rare ringer uh, at a discount yesterday. So I was like, oh, dude, wow. awesome buy. <laughs> so I DM'd him oh, and wow. I just caught up with him for a minute because I haven't talked to him in a minute. Yeah, man, that's that's totally awesome. Do you feel like this um, crypto art? explosion as a movement do you feel i mean you know you hear that a lot like is it something like an art movement i do think so um i don't know especially a year ago it felt like we were um like andy warhol's factory where all the artists were creating inspired by and you know partying together um and i and just like the factory eventually that winds down um, and people go off and do their careers. And I think we're in this phase right now where like the, the party is a little bit over, but it's, there's, it's the market is still very much alive. And in the same way that people are still buying Keith Haring, people are still buying, you know, all these other, you know? Um, And so, you know, to me, there's, I can't foresee a future in which digital art isn't quantified and valued after this. And so it's just a matter of whether or not the general public agrees with that or if it will. But in the end, it's like how many people go buy stuff from Christie's and buy art at galleries? It's a very small fraction of the population. So to to assume that, um, you know, half the world was going to be buying art is a, a very foolish assumption, <laughs> For sure. but it, it, it's in my, we talked about Chris, we talked about Sotheby's, um, you know, it is now an accepted form of art, which to a degree, digital art was, it was in like the Whitney's and the MoMA's in the, in the back rooms and stuff, but at, at least in a mainstream way, digital art is now, truly you know validated as a form of investment uh versus before where it was like you were on gofundmes or not go um you know uh, kickstarter or these like kind of subscription-based things where you were creating art and you're giving files but what you're giving people wasn't really anything of value as more just mementos and thank you notes um now people can support you and have quantified value of what they're buying yeah i uh, yeah i totally agree with all everything you just said i don't think that it's over man i think we're in a little bit of a lull and i think it's because you know we're so connected to the price of crypto you know yeah but i feel, but I feel like it's going to come roaring back at some point you know i don't know I'm, I'm i'm optimistic i think it'll like i said i think it'll be a slow summer Everyone's yeah. going to go out and touch grass. Um, yeah. I just bought a hammock yesterday. I'm very excited to go lay on a hammock. Um, nice. So I think, you know, it's it's totally healthy for people to take a little breather in the summers. Um, but, yeah, I'm not too stressed about the overall trajectory of things because what we're seeing right now is a big push towards art again. I think more people are getting bored of these collectibles what the the truth is i just don't think people care about these pfp worlds that are being built for better or worse i think it's cool as a person from the tv and animation industry i'm very hopeful that that's a a path to success but what we're seeing right now is a lot of people just care about value and if you want value um 
I think what I've seen is when Ethereum is up, altcoins are up, all these things are up, uh, people care less about art and they care more about quick flips and riding the momentums. Um, and what will happen is, let's say Ethereum goes down to 1500 again in a few months. Um, people are going to consolidate and go back into blue chips. And what are those blue chips? What we thought were blue chips a year ago were like Clonex and Moonbirds and all these things. What I think people will again realize is that it's art blocks or one of ones or things that hold true scarcity that won't grow up. You know, uh, you look at, um, you know, I keep, I keep thinking about artists, myself included. I'm going to keep making art until I die. You know, that's, that's my goal. Um, so my supply is going to grow. Sure. Those early art blocks curated, those are a thousand editions and under forever. And so if I was to look at like, what is a true blue chip? Those are the things to me that, um, people will put their money into as a store of value because even, you know, those are, those are art versus investing in Nike or something, you know, a company that could move on to other things or, you know, in the end, artists are going to respect and build our, our value over time. We, we don't have a business to run like a lot of these PFP projects, which are like developers and entrepreneurs and stuff like that. Our business is just us. And so it's, to me, it just makes a lot more sense to put that money in to artists that you believe will be here long-term. I think that's the key. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think our blocks will be here for forever because they- I I didn't even really get around to asking you about that, man. Like how'd you end up becoming an art blocks artist? It is- it was a lot of, well, we talked about SNL. I was working yeah. at SNL uh, with my buddy, Manny. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also in the VFX department, but he, he liked to do coding for After Effects and helped like with workflow stuff. Uh, and so I, I discovered Artblocks through uh, Matthew Farrick. Uh, he showed me the deconstructed elevation, I think it's called, where it's like, there's like pie charts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, this is on-chain, it's interactive, it's random, this is awesome. And then I saw Lux Pre do his, where he kind of took a super rare work and turned it into art blocks. And I was like, ooh, that's something cool. So I was working with Manny at SNL, and I was like, check out this art blocks thing, this is really cool. Uh, he was nervous about NFTs, but he loves to code. And I was like, this is, code is art, we can do this. Um, and so we spent our Christmas break hammering out Nimbuds. Um, <laughs> for a few weeks and then i reached out to snowfro because th- this is before ringers or fidenza art blocks is still relatively an unknown outside of the on-chain maxi world sure. um and so you know squiggles hadn't minted out yet it was still very small um and so i was just like this is the thing me and my buddy were working on what do you think and he's like i love it do you want to put it on the site in like two weeks? I was like, let's do it. <laughs> so it was, it was you know, that was before there was like a board of curation. <laughs> like, it was, it was all very loose and fun. Uh, but him and him and Jeff loved the project. And they were like, this, this is different from the other stuff. You know, at the time, I think Snowfro kind of pitched art blocks to me as like, Oh, this is like going to, Coles or something as a with a wedding registry and you say i want to buy a unique piece of art as a gift for this baby shower or this wedding um and you'll just be able to pump out an infinite amount of interesting gifts that you can make for people and i think you know i looked at it and i was like oh this is the new kid robot blind box toy mechanic of <laughs> i'm gonna buy this thing on a shelf and i don't know what i'm gonna get until i open it and right. so if you look at nimbuds i think it hit that baby shower idea and this like toy in a box idea. And so that, that that's kind of the genesis of it. Yeah, very cool, man. Yeah. And it was a, a continuation of my like nifty gateway drop prior, the cloudy drop. So Yeah, you're 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 an interesting smart guy to talk to, man. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I've, I've enjoy following you in your career. Before we hop off, I, we're getting to the top of the hour. Should we talk about our wives for just a second? Sure. Yeah, you. <laughs> my uh, wife said. Uh, my wife said that she and she and she and your wife uh, were hamming it up at the at the King of Midtown party, and both oh, of, nice. Both of them were, uh, you know, 
both of them were saying that they're kind of introverts and you know yeah drag around all these support group (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah uh my wife ashley um also extremely talented artist um she she does packaging design um but yeah she's too introverted she doesn't want to do nfts because she doesn't want to put herself out there and market them which i totally understand um it's it it requires you to give up a lot of autonomy to be in this space um and i think you know she prefers making um a a paycheck that's a week to week versus (laughs) the the uncertainties of this space uh but yeah that that was fun that was the only night i got her to come out to nft nyc last last week she's like i can can only do one night (laughs) my wife's a trooper man she goes you know she goes (laughs) she goes with me and it's like you know because i want to talk to everybody and meet everybody do everything you know It's, it's it's like go 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 so it's good to have the wing person. I always, I always appreciate having her because uh, inevitably uh, my memory is not a hundred percent and there's people I run into and I'm like, I kind of know who this is. I've met them. I don't know their name. And yeah. then I can have her and I say, Hey, this is my wife, Ashley. And then they, and I'm like, they introduce the name? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's always, that's always my struggle is that, especially because I meet all these people at parties where everyone's drinking or it's dark and it's loud. And it's like, you have like five seconds with somebody and it's so hard to like, sure. It usually for me, it takes meeting someone like three times before I truly have that instant recognition. Um, it's something I got to get, I got to eat that like ginkgo biloba stuff or whatever that they make for like brains. <laughs> it doesn't get any better, man. I'm a little older <laughs> You know, like it's worth. I'm I'm okay with like facial recognition. I kind of recognize people, but with names, I'm like I, I just can't. I can't even. I can't. It's it, it it's hard. Easy. Well, yeah, and it's like sometimes I I can know somebody by their anonymous PFP or fake name, but it it's hard to make that instant connection of like oh that's this person from this thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I had people that I saw in LA two weeks earlier that I couldn't remember. But when you only know people through their, like their Twitter screen name, you know, you're yeah. like, hi, stargazer. <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, well, sometimes I feel bad cause I'm like, I introduced them as their PFP because I don't remember their real name or whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> but it's like, Hey, that's still, that still counts. I still know who you are. Um, <laughs> There's one more little problem with the with meeting the Twitter with all these Twitter people is a lot of people have like really like complicated to pronounce names. So I don't yeah. know how to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, that's true. Uh, yeah. I always uh <laughs> <laughs> Brian's easy, so I didn't have to ask you, but you know, like a lot of times when I'm interviewing people on here, I'll always like before we start, I'm like, okay, how do I say your name exactly? <laughs> yeah. How do you your name? You'd be surprised how many people get my name wrong in writing, though. Um, either <laughs> spelling with a Y. There was an announcement from Maker's Place a couple days ago that put it as Byron Brinkman. Um, <laughs> it's like, as much as I try, my, my goal in life is to just have people instinctively know my name has a Y in it. Um, right. it's, it's the... It's the challenge. And then I found out there's another Brian Bremen that's an artist via chat GPT. I guess he does like posters for the band fish. Um, and so now when you like chat GPT, anything about me, it like combines our histories into one. <laughs> we need to, I know we're, we're running, we're running so thin on time and I know you got to go, but we, I mean, we didn't even touch that surface, man. Is AI killing art? Is that going to be a thing? Um, it'll kill certain types of art. Yeah. Yeah. It'll kill concept artists unless they certain concept artists will learn to use it and control it. But I think it'll kill stock photography websites. Um, it'll 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 reduce the need for a lot of things. Um, but for an artist, my general feeling is it's a tool, just like Photoshop, just like anything else. Um, what you do with it and the story you tell has to be based on your humanity and perspective. Otherwise, what's the point? That's, um, and then I think it'll be 
important for artists to disclose the mediums they use. I think where I see it being scary is that someone will say, hey, I painted this when really it's AI. Um, You just have to disclose the tools, which has always been the case with art. There's always, if you go to a museum, there's a little tag next to the thing that tells you if it's oil, if it's on wood, you know, it's disclosing medium is just a part of the space. So um, I'm not too worried about it. And I think if there's artists that should be afraid of it, it's the ones that have become stagnant in their growth. And by that, I mean, if an artist is just makes the same type of art over and over, and those are the ones that are going to be easy for AI to replicate. But if you continue to grow and evolve your style and learn new tools and get better, then you're always going to be a, 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 whether a step ahead or a step in another direction than the AI can guess. Yeah, I love that. That sounds like a great place to stop to me, man. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Thank you. This is fun. I'm glad we finally got around to it. Me too, man. I really uh, appreciate you coming on and taking the time to talk to me. And uh... Sweet. Yeah. If anybody is listening to this next week, which will be now as you're listening and you're at Consensus in Austin, uh, come come see me speak on uh, Thursday morning um, or maybe I'll just see you around town. Right on. Thank you all for listening to another episode of The Ledge with me and Brian Brigman. Brian, thank you so much for uh, coming on to the show. That was a really awesome conversation. I'm going to drop a link to Brian's socials in the show notes below. You can find me on Twitter at Harper underscore underscore Chris. And you can join us every week uh, here on The Ledge with a different crypto artist every week. Yeah.